church let's pray our great God and Father you are majestic and you are powerful blessed be your name you are the God who desired for there there to be those who know you and so you created blessed be your name you separated the water from the earth and you said this far and no further blessed be your name you said mountains, this high, no farther. Blessed be your name. And then you created man, and we fell. And you said, come, and we said, no. And so you came, Jesus. Blessed be your name. You came and you lived a life that we could never live, a righteous life that is of obedience, that we might have that obedience. Blessed be your name. You died on a cross that was not yours to die. You went through the wrath of God that was not yours to go through. Blessed be your name. And then you died a death that was not yours to die. Blessed be your name. And then, oh, praise you. You rose on the third day, showing that there is power over sin and death and that we might have faith in you and there is, there is pleasure and there are good things in, in for us who believe in you. Blessed be your name. Help us as we go about our lives, to be the blessing of your name. May we shine forth brightly as we act and as we live that your name is blessed because of your church. As we sing and as we praise your name now, may we be a blessing unto your name. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.
Brother Philip was telling me about preparing today. Um, we're talking sort of a, about a, an Old Testament scene where God had just done a miraculous thing for the Israelites, and uh, and and literally right right it, 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 you know the, the 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 miraculousness of that event had not even subsided, and they're going, oh, I'm thirsty, you know you know, and, and I, I'm going, you know, this is me, this is you, right? This is the Christian condition. We, we, we see God work, and then we, you know, forget so quickly. This, this verse came to me uh, as I was thinking about that. Mark 9, this describes the dad who had the, uh, the, the, the young boy who had an evil spirit. And, and, and most parents can say, I, I can relate. I've had a teenager. Uh, but, uh, but no, it's much serious than that. But, but he, he, he said uh, at the end, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And again, this is the Christian condition, isn't it? We know in our spirit, in our soul, that we've got belief. We've got a measure of faith. And we say, Lord, I give that to you. I believe. But I know I'm not there yet. I know I need greater belief. I know I need greater faith. Help me. 
And, and so if that is you, and I, I know it is, don't lie, then sing this song, and it'll help us all uh, re- remember uh, that uh, we just need to draw closer to the Lord for His strength. We learned this last Christmas, so it has some Christmas connotation to it, but, uh, but it really, really works today. Uh, oh, come all you unfaithful, and that's okay, because we're gaining faith as we trust in God. Amen? Oh, come, all you unfaithful, come, weak and unstable, come, though you are not alone. Oh, come, barren and waiting ones, weary of praying, come, see what your God
all come. No matter our position in life, no matter our faith or lack thereof, we can come. Uh, might go back to those ones I missed. Um, I, I was supposed to say something about a connection card, so please fill out the connection card. And, uh, and, and, and you can put that in the offering plate, which is going to happen in like two seconds, so you probably don't have time for that. So you can, you can take that uh, to the connection center and turn that in there, okay? So please fill that out, especially your first or second time guest. We'd love to know you're attending today. Another thing we wanted to let you know is we are planning a Baptist Men's Day. This is sort of a traditional thing that Southern Baptist churches do from time to time, every year, actually, uh, in the winter months. And uh, so we're going to have one on the 25th. So guys, whether you've ever been in a choir or not, we want you in the choir loft on the 25th. Next Sunday morning, uh, right after Sunday school at 10 o'clock, I want you all to meet right down here in the first six or eight rows, okay? And we're going to learn a song. And, and it, it's only going to take us 15 minutes. Now the ladies, you know, it, it, they'd take an hour, but we're, we're going to, no, because you're nicer than we are, you visit and you care about each other. We just get down to business. But anyway, but so, so we're just going to meet for 15 minutes, <laughs> maybe 20. We're going to meet for 15 minutes, and we're going to learn our song, and then we'll be ready for, for the 25th. <laughs> Woo, I just lost the crowd. <laughs> All right, remember I told you that that third verse was important. I never shall forget. We can't forget. And we've learned a great song uh, matter of fact, I think our pastor was the one that, that uh, told me about this song when he came, one of his favorites, and we're going to sing it today because we can't afford to forget. We will remember.
Amen. You may be seated. So has anybody found it ironic that on a day that I said it's all about remembering, I forgot the announcements and I forgot to pray for the offering. I feel like John Newton at the end of his life when he said, I don't remember much, but I do remember that I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. Jesus, you are. 
Once a year, I go see my cardiologist. It's fun. But before I see her, I actually have to see an echocardiographer. There's one up in the sound booth, and uh, his name is Brad Hampton. I don't like those guys because they put those electrodes on me. And then they always apologize when they snatch them off. That's the worst part about it, right? But I was born with a murmur. It's a hole that's very low in my heart, and my pressures have to stay on. I've never had one problem. But if those pressures change, then uh, I am probably in serious heart problems. It can happen when those pressures go off. So each year I have to have that done. And it's nothing like Mr. Glenn, uh, when we think about him, thinking he was fine, feeling good, and all of a sudden, uh, six months later, he's got a new heart because he had to have a heart transplant. But if I'm not checked up and things change, it could be deadly. But that's also true spiritually. Our passage addresses the hardening of the heart, which is a spiritual reminder. So hardness is a heart killer. Hardness is hardness of heart is a soul killer. So the writer of Hebrews will take a lesson from Israel's history and a lesson from Israel's sins. And he's going to use those sins that they committed in the wilderness to help us diagnose the condition of our hearts. The question is, do we have hardened hearts? So I'm asking you today to take those electrodes, hook the wires into them, 
and see what the condition of your heart is. You will give attention to the TV not many hours from now, for at least three hours, if not more. I promise you I won't go three hours. But I am asking you to give more attention to what you hear today. Why? Because just consider that outline. This is where we've come so far. Make every effort to hear God's word for you today. Today. And then do not harden your hearts. And today we're going to talk about do not be like those who formerly heard, but. And we're going to see that. And next week, actually, Baptist Men's Day is next week, right? No, that's right. Next week we're going to learn from the consequences of their sin as we finish out this warning. And then Baptist Men's Day and after Baptist Men's Day we will pick up in verse 12. So here's the reading of the word. Verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your father's put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Do not be like those who formerly heard But, the Bible says, they had hardness of heart that manifested itself in rebellion and testing. So, let's hold up the mirror of the Word of God and do a heart check regarding what they formerly did and where we are today. Let's use this diagnostic test to examine our own hearts. Question, why does the writer use Psalm 95 and not the original scriptures that reveal the actual rebellion. That's something we have to ask because it really began earlier than Exodus 17, but you're going to be introduced to those words Meribah and Massah then. You're going to be given those words that help us understand rebellion and testing in Exodus 17, but yet when the writer wants you to think about a hard examination, and what was going on with them, he actually goes to Psalm 95. Well, Psalm 95, let's, let's think of it in three ways, or three reasons why he chooses Psalm 95. The first one would be how Psalm 95 was frequently used as a call to worship on the Sabbath by ancient Israelites. You can tell that Psalm 95 is a fitting call to worship and actually not only in the early church but liturgically it's been used throughout history as a call to worship take your copy of God's word and look at Psalm 95 what you have in Hebrews 3 is that transition from verse 7 to verse 8 in Psalm 95 oh come let us sing to the Lord Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Notice that word? Rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. 
The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the the Lord our God, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Major transition here. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah. As on the day of Massah, in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways, therefore I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What an invitation. Come let us worship and bow down. You know that song? Let us kneel before. That's an awesome invitation to come before the Lord and worship. And perhaps, I mean, that's kind of an older song, right? So some of you newbies, what do you call, what do y'all call nowadays? Zen, Zen, whatever, Gen Z, whatever, yeah? You probably haven't heard that song, but it's in the Bible, right? Come let us worship and bow down. Maybe you've never heard it, but we have sung it through the years. So... Psalm 95 not only was a song that they did on the Sabbath, actually before that time, if you know your scriptures, in Exodus 23 and in Leviticus 23, God establishes a festival, a day. It's called the Festival of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Y'all know that? Y'all awake? Lock in. Stay with me. Don't drift to 530 today. Stay here. There, there's this, there is this festival that is actually established. And for seven days, the people of God would live in these little booths or tabernacles. And they were encouraged to not to ever forget or to never forget the wilderness wanderings. It was a festive occasion. It was a time of joy. So in Psalm 95, 1 through 7, there's this robust call to worship. It was Psalm 95 that they were thinking of, or Psalm 95 would be repeating the understanding of that festive environment of a time of joy. And you see that in verses 1 through 7, don't you? We are joyfully invited to vigorously sing to the sovereign God of all the earth, In verses 6 through 7, we are called to reverently come to God. Two different words of worship. One is to praise, to cut to the ear. But when you get to verse 6, it is get low and lick the dust of the earth. That's the primary word used for worship in the Old Testament. 97% of the time, it means get low, lick the dust of the earth. So, what is it bringing together? Sing joyfully, yet reverently bow down. In biblical worship, joy and reverence are always wed together. That's not true in every church you go to, but it should be. Joy and reverence are wed together. But when you arrive at the last part of verse 7, there's an abrupt change. The text moves from a festive joy and an occasion to worship the Lord to God's voice speaking. So God begins to address His people directly with a sobering reminder. So we go from... An invitation to worship, from joy to singing, to a sober reminder. 
Did you know that we can enter joyfully into the presence of God and then hear soberly what he has to say? That's what God calls us to do. So at this point, the incidents of Meribah and Massah are used in order to bring a sober reminder to the people. And those two names, which are summed up in actions of the people. Are you ready for this, Baptist? Grumbling, complaining, murmuring. That spirit of unbelief that was in the Israelites is defined by names that are put upon a place where the incident took place, Meribah and Massah. Meribah takes place in Exodus 17, just after the Exodus. Massah takes place, you ready, 39 years later after the Exodus. We could see them as bookends of the wilderness wanderings and the murmurings and the complaining unbelief in the spirit of the Israelites. So it summarizes the totality of 40 years of grumbling, murmuring, complaining because of a heart of unbelief. When you get to verses 10 and 11 in the book of Hebrews chapter 3, God's going to give a response to the sins of the people. He's going to give an analysis of their unbelief and in the ingratitude of the people. That's next week, okay? But what is underscored here is an oath that is taken by the Lord in Kadesh Barnea. I swore in my anger they shall not enter my rest. Wow, that's, that's tough. We sing parts of this psalm, right? We know this invitation of the, from the Lord to, to kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. It's very inviting. It's a summons into the presence of God. It reveals the, the character of our shepherd and our king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's this shift away from the festivities of everything and celebrating the wilderness wandering of this perpetual reminder of what God had done for the people. And he turns his attention to the sins of unbelief in the wilderness. It's a sobering reminder. It's a call to commitment, not to be guilty, that generation and you, of the same sins of the children of Israel in the wilderness. Here's what Derek Kidner says. This is a cold water shower of realism. And it was doubly so if the setting in the first place was the Feast of Tabernacles when Israel in holiday mood remembered the wilderness and with doubtless they were doubtless tempted to romanticize this idyllic age in other words you could maybe hear them talking in the back do you remember the good old days when our fathers wandered in the wilderness the sober facts of then and now are brought to bear on people and us do not harden your hearts as they did and we know the writer of Hebrews is fond of quoting the Psalms, is he not? He's, he's fond of giving us Old Testament principles to help us in our generation. So the events of Meribah, Massah, and Kadesh Barnea were pivotal for Israel's history. So if you think of the pinnacles of unbelief in the Old Testament of the people of God, that's it. Meribah, Massah, Kadesh Barnea. So those events... You can hang all of their unbelief on those, on those historical places or events. But the writer of Hebrews is going to take that particular understanding and he's going to give it to us in Psalm 95. Psalm 95 doesn't have a superscription. It doesn't tell you the condition or the case of when it was written or why. It could have been written uh, uh, 
in, in around AD 1, uh, BC 1000, 1000 BC. It could have been written earlier, some 500 BC. It was, however, no matter which one, it was a deep, abiding lesson for that generation that the psalmist was writing to. Okay? This is why we have such a shifting of the gears in Psalm 95, verse 7. Kidner again says, The worshiper in singing this song is reminded himself, Are you listening? If I might give good application, it's one thing to sing and to worship, but if it doesn't issue forth into obedience, you haven't worshiped God. Period. That's why he's saying this like he's saying it. We sing the songs. But if on Monday morning you stay in a habitual habit of not listening and obeying God, then you're lost. Plain and simple. You you can't have true redemption and understanding of faith and knowing the ways of God. What does it mean to know the ways of God? His providence toward you and His commands for you. That's the ways of God. His providence toward you and His ways or His commands for you. Now, this is serious because the writer, man, this sounds festive. Come let us worship and bow down. Wait a minute. Make sure you don't harden your hearts. Make sure you're listening to his voice. Make sure that you are actually obeying. So, is he, is the worshiper who claims to be worshiping the Lord listening to God's voice? So, the writer of Hebrews is led by who to write the book of Hebrews? The Holy Spirit of God. And he's pondering Psalm 95 and he realizes what the psalmist does for his generation using this turning point is exactly what he needs to do to this generation because for them to walk away from Christ is actually worse. It is. The writer of Hebrews is going to say that. It's one thing for you to hear a man give you a message. It's another thing to hear from heaven. And so, Psalm 95 is not only given and I think that's why the writers go into Psalm 95 is because the people knew about Psalm 95. They sang it all the time as a perpetual reminder of what God did for them. But here's the second reason. We're told in the Word of God that Old Testament Israel is an example for us. Aren't we? We're told Old Testament Israel is an example to us. There's an abiding relevance for all subsequent generations Don't turn, just listen for the sake of time. Romans chapter 15. Listen to the word of the Lord. Write it down and go back and look at it. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that though that through endurance, by the way, that's the theme of Hebrews, right? Through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. What was recorded? In Exodus and Numbers and reflected upon in Psalm 95 was written for whose instruction? Ours. The Bible is not just a book that details the history of an ancient people. You are looking at a book that is inspired by God that gives you examples and instruction led by the Spirit of God. And he uses it from generation to generation. And it is just as relevant today as it was then. And the Bible here is driving home particular truths that we need to put in our hearts and minds. So we hear the lessons of the wilderness wanderings. We hear the lesson of Psalm 95. And I pray you hear 
the lesson of Hebrews 3 today. We need this instruction so that we persevere in hope. So that we are inspired by what the Word of God has to say to us. Let me give you another passage. Just turn over one book, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This one is a little salty, for lack of a better way of saying it. Chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. Listen to the spiritual benefits. Y'all listening? They were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock. There it is again. The rock was in Psalm 95. Here's the rock in 1 Corinthians that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Isn't that awesome? Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Listen to verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. All right, verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. It's not just an ancient book that's detailing Israel's wanderings, and we can just say, well, I'm glad I'm not Israel. Those instructions are for you. Those instructions are for me. So, the first five verses deal with Moses and the Exodus. talks about the spiritual rock. Uh, that followed them, who was identified as Christ. And then in verse 6 and verse 11, we learn that it's for us. We need to learn the example. Okay, one more reason for using Psalm 95. You ready? 40. 40. Why 40 years? Why is it that the writer of, of Psalm 95 would pick up on the 40, and then the writer of Hebrews would pick up on the 40? Well, how many years were they in wilderness wanderings? Forty. I wonder how many years it had been when the writer of Hebrews wrote this since Jesus Christ went to the cross and resurrected from the dead. Probably around forty. Now this, think about this for a moment. I mean, first generation, second generation Christians... The temple is about to be destroyed in 70 A.D. Most scholars believe that the book of Hebrews was written pretty much at that time because the way the writer deals with it as we move through Hebrews and you hear about sacrifices and offerings. But the fact remains, there's an identification of 40, I think, for a purpose. We know that 40 biblically is a significant number. Don't go too far with numerology, but this is important. And the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 95. And he's careful in the quotation. It's 40 years. And again, if this epistle was written shortly before A.D. 70, and we're looking back at A.D. 30, then there's this present appeal for the readers not to forget all that he has said in Hebrews 1 through 3 regarding the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not be this generation, 70 A.D., like the generation that happened in Exodus 17 that was potentially happening for those who heard in Psalm 95. Now, when you get to Psalm 95, it's it's given in a slightly different way. 
Do we see Meribah and Massah in Hebrews 3? No, but you see the translation of the words. You don't see Meribah, Massah. You see the translation of their sins or the place where they committed the sins. So he will say in verse 11 that he swore in his wrath that they would not enter his rest. When was that particular declaration made? He actually makes it again at Kadesh Barnea. And in Numbers chapter 14, when he sends out the 12 spies. Y'all remember this? 12 spies go out. And they're searching out the land to see if the Israelites can take the land. And they all have what's called the grasshopper syndrome. they big people over there. And they'll squash us like grasshoppers. And only two of them came back with a good report. And by the way, the other ten were seen, that was seen as an evil report of unbelief. Only two came back with a positive report. And that was Joshua and Caleb. So that's the second time the Lord makes the declaration. And now let's go over to Exodus 17. Y'all with me? Everybody awake? I can't pull a rabbit out of the hat to do more theatrics, but I can read the Bible to you. And that ought to be enough, right? Exodus chapter 17. Listen to these events. Young people, please look. Look at your phone, not, not, not sports. Look at the scripture. If you don't have it, trust me, you can just type in ESV, Exodus 17, and bang. There it is. Look at the word. All the creation, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. According to the commandment of the Lord and encamped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled. Hmm? There's your word. There's your word translated into Hebrews chapter 3. With Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, all words are important here, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah, and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, and here's their brief. Here's their accusation. You understand that the Lord is the one that's on trial here, not the people. Is the Lord among us or not? Do y'all know when these events took place? Two months after the Exodus. The people had just witnessed the ten plagues. They just witnessed being delivered out of Egypt through dry land of a parted Red Sea. Would you have been impressed walking through on dry ground while the Red Sea was walled up at your right and left hand? Do you think you would have been impressed to know that God was actually the one holding the walls of water back so that the Israelites could pass through on dry ground? 
and it was the Lord God who once all the Israelites passed through on dry ground that the Lord himself turned the waters loose and drowned every bit of Pharaoh's army. Is that impressive? They had just seen the ten plagues. All the firstborn in their homes were safe because they were under the blood. But that wasn't true for the Egyptians. God made a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. Clear from the word of God. Here they are at the Red Sea. This is earlier, right? Moses, you brought us out here to kill us. Here comes Pharaoh's army. We're wiped out. We can't go anywhere. And Moses holds up that staff that in chapter 17 is, become a, is going to become a staff of judgment. But he holds that thing up then as a staff of deliverance, of redemption for the people of God. And here they're standing at the Red Sea and they're saying, you know what? We had a good diet, actually a good fat diet. We were happy eating the leeks and the onions by the Nile. Moses, you premeditated our death and we're going to be squashed by Pharaoh's army. And Moses says, stand back. See the salvation of the Lord. God Almighty will perform the deliverance of all deliverances in the entire Old Testament. It will be the type of all redemption in the Old Testament. Moses, hold, Moses holds up that staff, which has been a sign of judgment to Egypt. And it now becomes a sign and symbol of redemption for the people of God. Exodus 17 is not the first time they grumbled, right? You would think that if they had eyes of faith, they would think that since God has drowned the entire army, he could certainly provide food for us in the wilderness. Moses, you brought us out here to kill us. The Red Sea thing, that was pretty neat. But you know you brought us out here to kill us. So what does God do? He provides manna. This is leading up to Exodus 17. They enjoyed the supernatural provision of food that actually came out of nowhere. But God gave it. When the manna was still on their breath, and they're at Rephidim, it's called resting place. That's what it means. There's no water. What was their proper response, church family? Trust God. Have you had eyes of faith to see what I've already accomplished? But they're too much removed and they're blinded. They have hardness of heart and unbelief. The same God that preserved you through the plagues, brought you through the Red Sea, fed you with man in the wilderness, will he not provide for you water? We know that this is not the posture of faith, is it? It's not a faith posture like Hebrews 11. We'll get there one year, right? Now, this quarrel, hear me, it's, a, it's really defined as a legal complaint. That's really what it is. Uh, the Hebrew means a legal complaint. It's a lawsuit against Moses. And Moses is going to identify the true nature of it later. And that was this, putting God to the test. In Deuteronomy 8, verse 2, if you know your history, we know that God led them in the wilderness those 40 years to test them, to see that what was in their heart, whether they would obey him or not. You ever read that before? God led them in the wilderness those 40 years. Now hear me, he's leading them to see if they will obey him or not. So God was testing them. But in this text, they have the audacity to turn to tables. God has been testing them. But they call out and say, Moses, you're a fraud. And this is going to be premeditated murder. So Moses rightly sees that the people deserve the judgment. But he realizes his position before the Lord. And he knows that he really could be executed in their place. 
Y'all do know that, right? And so, in verses 5 through 7, God initiates a trial. I'm going to stand before the people, not vice versa. God initiates a trial. Think of this. It says the elders are to come out first. Why? Because who ruled Israel? Elders. They judged the people for their sins. They heard the cases. What is the staff? It's a symbol of judgment. Verse 6 says, And behold, I will stand before you. God, in a sense, puts himself on trial before the people. Now, we know God is spirit, right? Until he manifested himself bodily in the person of the Son of God. But that's not the case at this point. But here we have a rock. And what is the rock? Well, we, we know what it says in 1 Corinthians 10. But in Deuteronomy 32, 4, it says the Lord, he is our rock. So that becomes the physical, visible place of God's divine presence. The rock was not God. It was a symbol of his manifest presence to them. So God is putting himself before them on a trial, and the people want to judge God. They actually want to kill God, and they want to kill him in the place of God's servant, Moses. That's, that's what's going on in the text of Scripture. Have you ever heard of the principle of, I'm in the docks? Well, God had put himself in the dock. And for you lawyers in here, that is the English court of law, or in English court of law, the accused sits in the dock. So where does this take place? It takes place at Mount Horeb. It's another name for Mount Sinai, the place of the law. Notice what God says. You strike the rock. Now take the symbol of judgment, Moses, which is a staff. Strike the rock, which is a symbol of my present. And this was not some kind of magic trick. We think that, woo, wilderness. We think rock, stick, hit it. Water. Wow. Miracle. Now wait a minute. God is in the dock. He's on trial. And the symbol of judgment strikes the rock. And the people are the ones who deserve the judgment. But instead God takes the judgment in their place. What does he turn around and do? Provision. Water gushes out of the rock. I want to remind you that water in the wilderness was a representation of life. Water in the wilderness brings forth life through an act of judgment in this verse. Does this sound familiar? Is it any wonder that we call Jesus the rock of ages? It was him alone that preserved their life. The very ones who complained, filed a lawsuit against him, wanted him dead in the person of the visible servant, Moses. He takes their place as the one who doesn't deserve the judgment. He should have been he should have left all the Israelites sliced and diced in the wilderness. But he doesn't. Instead, he takes the judgment they deserved. And then he gives what they could never provide for themselves, which was water. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the way. Lest you missed it. He does for you what you cannot do for yourself. He took your judgment. Then God says, let's give this place two names. We will call it Massah Trial. And I was put to the test, and we will call it Meribah, the lawsuit or complaint. And here's the brief. You remember it? Is the Lord among us or not? That's what they're saying. With all the evidence of the manifest presence of God, the audacity for those people to say, is God with us or not? 
So here you have a people who have been redeemed from bondage, delivered from slavery. They've seen, they've seen the astounding works of Almighty God. They've tasted the goodness of the Lord. You ever heard that in Hebrews 6? They persevered by God's fatherly hand. Yet the minute something goes wrong, they begin to grumble and complain and whine and make charges against God. They're the ones that deserve to die, but God will take their place and save their life. All right, you ready for another one? Numbers. Y'all are doing so good. I'm proud of you. Numbers chapter 20. This incident takes place 39 years after the one you've just read. Listen, it's not the first generation that dropped dead in the wilderness, but this is the second generation who watched the first generation drop dead in the wilderness. Okay? What you have in this passage is somewhat what we might call deja vu. Here it is, chapter 20. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried. Now there was no water for the congregation. Uh Uh-oh, watch out. And they assembled themselves together with Moses and Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said... Would that, would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord? Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of the meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke. To Moses saying, take the staff, assemble my congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. No judgment here. Uh, No staff, only speaking to the rock. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give them to drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water out from the rock for you? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff, not once but twice. And water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their livestock. That's the end of the story, right? Nope. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given to them. All right, we're going back 39 years. You ready? There, These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, had their lawsuit against me, and through them he showed himself holy. Well, you got the same rock. You have the astonishing part uh, of the incredible patience of God and forbearance demonstrated to the people in delivering them. There's no rebuke. There's no judgment. There's only, there's no strike the rock, but speak to the rock. God doesn't. Give Moses a command to speak a word of rebuke at all. But Moses takes it on himself to fire off, fire off the people, right? He's filled with anger. He's filled with unbelief. Moses takes the symbol of judgment, strikes the rock two times. But God's still in free grace. Let's the water flow. Moses' act was an act of unbelief, church family. Unbelief and disobedience are equivalent. To disobey is unbelief. Biblically speaking, there's no division between faith in God's promises and faith in God's commands. 
Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Moses, faith in God's commands, produces obedience. Moses allowed his anger to override his faith. He allowed his frustration to blind the eye of faith. It killed his obedience, and he misrepresented God. He lashes out at the very symbol of grace and mercy. As he strikes that rock twice, God says, no rewinds. Are you all listening? No rewinds, no erasing, no going back. Moses had been a faithful man to God for 39 years. And at that moment, Moses, in disobedience, with his anger, quenches his faith. Quenched faith leads to disobedience. Is everybody listening? Quenched faith leads to disobedience. And in his disobedience, he does not treat God as holy before the children of Israel. Do y'all know who God is most committed to? Not you. I hate to hurt your feelings. In America, we think God is most committed to us. But you haven't read your Bibles. God is most committed to himself. Just read it. For my great name's sake, I'm going to act. He saved you, not because of you, but because of his great name's sake. When he acts, he acts every time because of his own reputation and his own glory. Don't you think Moses wished he had a button to hit at that moment that said rewind? You know he does. Let's try this again. We may say, I'm glad that history is written with a pencil. And we can just erase this part. doesn't happen. We know the history. Moses is going to die on Mount Pisgah. He's going to be overlooking the promised land. But his feet will not touch it. God says, this place is Meribah. The people once again quarreled with me, complained against me, brought the lawsuit against me in their unbelief. It was still a place of grace, but judgment for Moses. Mm. For 40 years, the Israelites grumbled and complained, murmured and griped against Moses. But folks, make no mistake about it. Who were they, will, who were they really griping against? God, right? As you read the Bible, in biblical narratives and history, we must stand back and say, man, their ingratitude was absolutely unfathomable. Wasn't it? Their complaining spirit was an offense to God. But ultimately, that groaning, that grumbling, murmuring, ungrateful spirit was not the root. It was the fruit of a bigger issue. The root was the heart of unbelief. Make no mistake about it. All that stuff, complaining and murmuring, it, it showed an ab absolute lack of faith. It was absolutely a heart of unbelief. In Numbers 14, God asked Moses, how long will these people spurn me? We look at old Balaam and we say, man, that was a crazy prophet. But he actually had something right that the people of Israel didn't understand. They couldn't ever wrap their heart and mind around this principle but listen to Numbers chapter 14. No, I'm sorry. I did mark this somewhere. Oh, I've lost my quote on this one. But here's what basically Balaam says. He is not a man that he should die... Or that, or that he should lie. And then he uses this phrase. He said it and he will do it. So here is Balaam 
who's way smarter than most of the Israelites, and we think of him as a crazy prophet, and yet Balaam will say, here's a God who says it, and he will perform it. Okay? So that very truth, that God has said it and he will do it, is the fundamental lesson that the Israelites could not wrap their hearts and minds around. And that's why they remained in a perpetual state of unbelief. Their actions arose from a heart of unbelief. Their unbelief was inextricably wed together in their disobedience. It was all connected to an unbelieving heart. It all came as a result of a hardened heart. And that unbelief, that unbelief grew out of the heart that was hardened because it would not listen. Listen to the faith-building, faith-sustaining voice of Almighty God. So if we seek to boil down Israel, their sin in the wilderness, it's simple. Because their heart was hard, they refused to listen to the faith-building, faith-sustaining voice of God in the Word of God. And as a result, they would not trust his promises. They would not trust his provision. And the writer to the Hebrews uses Psalm 95 to capitalize upon those two events. Why? To exhort his generation. Okay, y'all ready? I'm starting my descent to land the plane. Okay? It's not landed yet, but I'm coming down. Electrodes. Wires to your chest. What's the condition of your heart? Is there grumbling? Is there murmuring? Is there complaining? Those are all fruits. As the electrodes are hooked up, look at the screen of your life. Is there ingratitude? Is there blame shifting? It's always someone else's fault. Folks, these are symptoms. The problem, according to Exodus 17, Numbers 20, Psalm 95, and Hebrews 3, if there's no flow of faith in your arteries, are y'all listening? What the screen shows is no flow of, of blood, <laughs> no flow of faith in your arteries because they're hardened. The life of obedience may have evaporated because there's no trust in the promises of God. Remember Balaam's word? When God says it, he'll do it. You can take it to the bank. Now, we men don't like to get diagnoses, do we? We'll do everything we can to keep from going to the doctor. We'll, keep, we'll try to do everything we possibly can to keep from knowing what that diagnostic tool says about our grumbling and murmuring and ingratitude and complaining. But the real problem is you have no faith. That's the real problem. There are these kooks out there who say that if you just have enough faith, you'll own a BMW one day. The Bible says if you have faith, you won't be a grumbler, a whiner, and a complainer. That's what the Bible says about faith. So, what do you do, folks, this morning? Well, you repent. And you own it. The worst thing is to say, wow, hard heart. The flow of faith is not good right now. If my husband wasn't such a jerk, then I'd probably be in a better position. I'd be a better Christian. Maybe my heart would be better too if it wasn't for that jerk of a husband. Some of you husbands are saying, if my wife would submit a little more, maybe, maybe my heart would be in a better condition. And all of us say, man, if those kids that God gave me. Let's stop right there, right? Look, the steps of recovering is owning the hardness of your own hearts. If you can't own it, then you don't have faith. 
If you can't own it, then you're in a state of unbelief. The first step is to re- in recovery is owning up to the hardness of your hearts. Lord, take all the crud that's in those arteries, in this heart. And it's been expressed in all these ugly ways. And revitalize it and clean my heart. Let me hear the voice, your voice from your word. Soften my heart that I might hear your word. Obey it and walk in your ways. I don't want to be like those who in the day of provocation tested you in the wilderness. Our question, have you not seen the kindness of the Lord, FBCO? Have you not tasted of the goodness of God? Have you not seen monument after monument after monument of God's faithfulness to you? Have you not heard the joyful sound that Jesus saves? Jesus saves. Have you not lifted up your eyes by faith to the hill far away where stood an old rugged cross? The emblem of all suffering and shame. Has he not forgiven you of your sins? Hebrews says he's removed them as far as the... Hebrews says he will remember your sins no more. Hallelujah. Has he not accomplished for you more than you could ever imagine? Are not his mercies new every morning? Is not his faithfulness great? As the writer of Psalm would say, God is good. And he does good. You can trust him. With your whole being, you have no less evidence than the Israelites of old. Don't go down that road. Boy, if I would have seen the Red Sea part, there's no way I would walk in unbelief. Don't fool yourself. You've been given more with the life, death, burial, and resurrection of the living God. Jesus even commended that kind of faith, didn't he? By saying, you've loved the one that you haven't seen. Uh, just think of this. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. If you harden your heart today, you're going to be worse off tomorrow. We need to do business with God, don't we? For some of us, it means owning up to grumbling, complaining, and that spirit against God that's rooting in unbelief. you got to own it before you can ever be cleansed from it. Father God, put an end to my Blame shifting. All right, folks, don't be like those who formerly heard, but. The result was that God was angry and cut them off from the promised land. We'll talk about that next week. Now, the point of this verse is the if. Remember verse 6? Y'all listening? The Bible says, but Christ is faithful over the house of God, and we are his house. If. All right, verse 13, verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You're holding that confidence because you've been given a new heart of belief and you're not going to let go because Christ is holding on to you. You're not going to be like the Israelites. The evidence that you're not is the fruit that's in your life. We studied 1 Thessalonians, did we not, this morning in Sunday school? Paul says, we know what kind of entry we had to you, how you turned to God from idols. Those prepositions moved the world. They didn't turn from idols to God. You know, you can easily put another idol on your shelf. You can turn from this idol to this idol to this idol to this idol. But if you turn to God, you will turn from idols. Right? 
to, what happens? You turn to God from idols to serve the living God. To wait. In other words, something happens inside of you where Jesus takes hold of you and you're not going to let hold of him. You're, you're not going to let go of him. So, if we harden our hearts in the day of trial and murmur, and we murmur uh, in the trial and we murmur against him, we throw away our confidence. The same God that provides for you and your great salvation is the same God that provides for you today. The story of Israel, in many ways, is an example for a professing church. Do we treat God's grace with contempt? Do we presume to receive His grace only as an escape from Egypt and that memory? But not being satisfied with His guidance and provision in the wilderness of life. Search yourself this morning. How many professing Christians want the mercy of forgiveness so that they won't go to hell? But they've got hard hearts toward the Lord when he comes to you daily, seeking to have fellowship with you. That's what this book is written to prevent. How many professing Christians make a start with God? Notice I'm saying professing. They hear that their sins can be forgiven. They hear that they can escape hell and go to heaven. And they say, well, wow, what have I got to lose? I'll believe. But then when one week or one month or one year or ten years passes and the test comes and there's a season of no water in the wilderness, there's a weariness with this manna that God has given. There's, there's this subtlety of a growing craving for fleeting desires of Egypt. Look at verse 13. The deceitfulness of sin. As it says in Numbers 11, we remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing at all to look at except this manna. Oh, friends, that's a terrifying condition to be in. To find that you're uninterested in the things of Christ. You're uninterested in the word of God, in prayer, in, the, in, in worship of the Lord, in missions, and living for the glory of God. And to find all fleeting pleasures of this world more attractive than the things of the Spirit, you better wake up, you're in trouble. If you find this world more attractive than Christ, you are in trouble. Period. Unless this book's not true. And I'm telling you, it's true. So, we need to wake up. This is a terrifying condition. If that is your situation this morning, then I plead with you to listen to the Holy Spirit speak to you through this text. Running it down, give heed to the Word of God. Chapter 2, verse 1 of Hebrews. Do not harden your hearts, chapter 3, verse 8. Wake up to the deceitfulness of sin, chapter 3, verse 13. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Hold fast to your confidence and the boast of your hope in God. And if you have never even made a start with God, then you only have one hope today. And Katie sang it. you got to turn to Christ alone. Period. There's no righteousness given to you that's going to qualify you for heaven except Christ. He's the only one. So turn from sin and self-reliance. Put your confidence in our great Savior. These things are written. And this sermon was preached so that you might believe and endure and have life. God help us. Father help us to think, to heed. I know it's Super Bowl Sunday but this is way more important. This is eternity. Lord, this is where the rubber hits the road. What's my life look like in view of my confession? Did I just trust on a whim because it sounded good? 
And man, nobody wants to go to hell. But then there's no fruit. There's no life. There's no guidance. There's no trusting Jesus. Walking by faith. God help us. And if there's someone lost today, may you give them the eyes of faith. Just like Lydia on the riverbank in Acts 16, your word says you opened her heart to hear what Paul was saying. God help us here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing. The first seven words we sing are of vital importance. For my life, he bled and died. If there's anybody in here that says, I just sang that, but that doesn't apply to me, you come and receive Christ today, okay? For my life, he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raise with him to endless life. He will hold me fast until our faith is turned to sight. When he comes at last, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me I was like a pregnant lady, and I had to deliver that baby. I had to deliver that baby. And when it burns in your soul, you got to deliver it. Amen? Amen? And thank you for allowing me to deliver it. Some of you could have said, well, it's close to 12. I'm out of here. I'm glad you stayed. Amen? Glad you stayed. I hope it was worth it. It is. It was. <laughs> Definitely worth it for you. To God be the glory. Uh, we'll be back tonight here at 530. And I'm going to talk, since I did Psalm 95 about worship, I want to give you just a couple of quick points tonight about worship, and I hope you'll be here. God bless you.